Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit, who is our uh, possession in as believers in this church age. He indwells each and every believer, but his sanctifying ministry, the ministry where he is working to mature us, is only active in us as we are walking by the Spirit. That means we have to be in fellowship. We have to be abiding in Christ. When we sin, that is broken. So we confess or admit our sins to God, and we're immediately forgiven and cleansed and restored to fellowship and the ability to move forward in our Christian life. That's such an important dynamic. Now, we're in Romans 16 tonight, so we'll be wrapping up with a lot of interesting little details, so we're going to need all the help by the Holy Spirit that we need. So make sure that you are uh, spiritually prepared, and then I will open in prayer after a few moments of silent prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we have this time to come together this evening to uh, focus upon your word, to be reminded of all that you have given us and provided for us and all of the responsibilities that are ours as part of our spiritual life and our spiritual advance. Father, we continue to pray this evening for very, very specific uh, prayer requests. I want to continue to pray for Jim Myers finishing up his ministry in Brazil and his trip back to Kiev and then... Uh, uh, just pray for his ministry, pray for his health, pray for Phyllis and her health. Continue to pray for George Meisinger and his recovery from cancer and guidance and direction for the board at Schaefer Seminary. And then, Father, we're also in prayer for uh, Mark Musser, who leaves on Monday to go to Kiev to teach over there for the next couple of weeks. Father, we're thankful that we have these faithful servants who are teaching your word throughout the world, and we pray that you would continue to raise up Uh, young men who can dedicate their lives and their studies and their training to be prepared to take the word throughout the world. And we pray for us tonight as we study your word that our minds might be sharp and focused as we study through these closing verses in Romans. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 16. Now, granted, this is not one of the most exciting, doctrinally deep passages that you run across in Scripture. There are little things that are sprinkled throughout these closing greetings that we ought to pay attention to. And we also need to realize that despite the fact that we don't know most of the 25 names that are mentioned here or the two or three that are not specifically named, nevertheless, under the uh, ministry of God the Holy Spirit in his inspiring and preserving of God's word, he has seen fit to preserve this and preserve these closing greetings. Again, one reason for that is it gives us an insight into the personal nature of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And that's part of any ministry is developing uh, personal relationships with the folks that you minister to. And we have a lot of opportunities to do that. It's not just while a big part of the model for the local church does relate to the study of the word and it has parallels to a classroom. It's not a classroom. It's uh, in the same sense that you have a classroom at a local university or even a seminary. I always kind of chuckle. I used to get really irritated at it 
but now I just sort of chuckle as I've gotten a little older, that people think that an in, when I teach the Word, says, you know, that would be, you would do well in a seminary. And I have to constantly disabuse people of that notion, people who say that have no idea what goes on in a seminary. In a seminary, in a class on Romans, you will cover Romans probably in a two-hour class. That means that you have about two and a half hours a week over approximately a, an 18-week uh, semester. So that's going to be approximately 27 hours. Isn't that right? comes out that way, about 27 hours of instruction. We had more than 27 hours going through the first chapter. Uh, a seminary is, the English word seminary comes from the word seminal, the word seed. You're just planting seeds in a seminary classroom. You're covering the foundations of something to, to plant the seeds for later production. And that's what you get, is this is really the model that we should see as pastors go to seminary, they learn the basics, they learn a framework for the books that they study, and then when they have the at their leisure, and you may not know this, but the word for scholar in Latin has as its ultimate root meaning the word leisure. Because if you're working doing a full-time 40, 50, 60 hour a week job, you don't have the leisure that you need to really dig into the Word of God. And so uh, you need to, every pastor should be a scholar. Now, different pastors have different other gifts, which means that the gift of pastor teacher doesn't look the same in, e- in each person. There are different personalities. We know that people are given the spiritual gifts to different measures, so some have a different measure than others. Sometimes the gift of pastor teachers combined with other gifts, such as administration or uh, mercy or helps or some of these other gifts, which are, are blended in with that gift of pastor teacher. And so it's always going to manifest differently, but the core responsibility of the pastors to train the congregation, Ephesians chapter uh, 4, uh, 10, and 11 talk about the, the, the various gifted leaders of the local church during the first century. It included apostles and prophets, and for the rest of the church age, for, for evangelists and pastor teachers, and it's those the role of those gifted men to, as the text says, to equip the saints, that's y'all, to do the work of ministry, which means, you know, we often think of the pastor, he's the minister. He's the one who does the ministry. No, he's, the, he's like the coach. He's the trainer. Y'all are the ones who are on the team and out on the field playing the game. The pastor is the coach. He's the one who trains the team to go out and, and do the work, uh, do the work of ministry. And in that process, you build, uh, many different relationships. And so we get a little picture of that in these verses. I also pointed out last time that another thing that we see in these verses is that I compared it to a fire ant bed out in some ranch in Texas that it may not look like much, especially if it's been dry. You just see that the the ground's been disturbed a little bit, and if you know what you're looking for, you know that there must be an ant bed there. But if you go up and you kick it, then all of a sudden all of these ants come boiling out of the nest, and if you're not careful, they will sting you, and that's quite a painful sting, which is why they call them fire ants. And there are some verses like that in Scripture. They seem pretty innocuous, until somebody comes along with some issue and and starts kicking at it a certain way. And I pointed out in the last time that there are three verses in this section that relate to the debate that's been going on in the evangelical church for the last 50 years over the role of women in ministry. And one of the books that I recommended last time, I think, is by a friend of mine and, and colleague of mine, Wayne House, that he wrote back in the early 80s called The Role of Women in Ministry, and he does an excellent job dealing with all the different issues. But again, this is one of those issues where if you're coming to this as a believer, you're going to think radically different about this than if you're not a believer. Because we believe that 
things in God's creation are what they are because God made them that way, and then God tells us how they are distinct. Whereas if you come at nature as non-Christians refer to it, now I know Christians refer to creation as nature. I always try to make that distinction because we view the the God's all of God's creation as as His creation. The word nature tends to almost carry with it a sense of something that is autonomous, something that operates on its own, that it, it's not dependent upon a sustainer creator for its ongoing uh, action. And so we, the unbeliever, the pagan mindset looks at nature and views it as ha- operating on its own laws, whereas uh, as a believer we look at it as uh, that creation operates on the laws that God built into it from the very beginning of creation, or at least they became operative in some sense after the end of the creation week, and then they were modified after the fall. So we look at that and we look at uh, try to come to understand who males are, the role of males within the, the marriage and within the home and, and within the family and the church. And we look at women and the role of females within the marriage, within the home, within the church. And we come to different conclusions because when we look at these roles, we look at them as God defined them and not as, as we would shape them based on our experience. So we have to grant, once again, it always goes back to that issue of, of authority and building out from the, from the scripture. And I emphasized several things on that last, last time. One of the issues that gets brought up is the issue of Phoebe. And is Phoebe a, a deaconess? Was that an office in the church? And I covered that and said that that, if, if that is appropriate, it was something totally different from what we were describe as the role of a deacon in many churches today. The, the word deacon just means a servant. This would be a, a woman who carried out certain responsibilities as she served and carried out her work of ministry within the local church. And so it wasn't, I, I don't think there was a, an official office in the apostolic period related to a, a deaconess. And then I talked about Priscilla and Aquila and the issue there because Paul talks in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, that he does not allow women to teach, to give instruction in public to, to men, or to have authority over men. And so that is restricted in 1 Timothy chapter 2. That doesn't mean women aren't capable teachers. There are many women who are capable teachers. I even know some women who are uh, better Bible teachers than a lot of pastors and men that I know, but that does not make them qualified or the, uh, justify the fact that they should teach the, teach the Bible. That is just the way God uh, made things, that women have spheres in which they are to uh, primarily function and excel, and uh, men have their spheres in which they are to uh, lead and to serve and to excel. We're going to hit a third verse here. Notice the, all these verses are verses that don't directly teach on these topics, but they're things that are mined, as it were, to support some of the evangelical feminist arguments. So we got through Priscilla and Aquila last time. And in verse 5, Paul concludes that section and says to greet the church that is in their house. So we know that they had, they were hosts for a group of believers who met in their house and a house church. And that was true, a way in which many uh, churches met in the early church. They were at Rome at the time and they had been expelled earlier. Then they returned. While they were away from Rome, Paul met them. Uh, also, he met them in Corinth. Later, when he writes 1 Corinthians, they're in Corinth, and they are they have a house church there. So he sends greetings to the group of believers that are meeting in their house. And then we start into a section with a series of greetings to people that we know very little about. But we'll just make some observations as we go through this particular section. He says, Greet my beloved Eponidas, 
who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Now, I want you to have your Bible open because I did not put all of these verses into the slide, so you're going to need to follow along in your in your own uh, scriptures we go through these verses. Uh, the text, if you're using a New American Standard Bible, NIV, or one of the Bibles that's based on the uh, Nestle Aland edition, then it reads uh, uh, that he's, um, it reads uh, Asia, that he is the first fruits of Asia, but the majority text, and I believe a superior reading, is that he was the first convert in the area of Achaia. Greece was divided into two areas. The northern area was uh, Macedonia that uh, covered areas such as Philippi, uh, Berea, and Thessalonica. And then when you got down to Athens and the area south of Athens, this was the area that was described as Achaia. So he was the first convert in Achaia as Paul was moving south from Berea, or Varia as it's pronounced in modern Greek, and then he, he so he's writing from there now Epinetus is moved back or is moved to to Rome in verse 6 he says to greet Mary who labored much for us we know uh almost nothing about this particular Mary except she was a hard worker for the Roman church incidentally the bible mentions six different Marys it was a very common name Miriam was the Jewish name, and some of the, um, in fact, the majority of the Greek manuscripts use the word Miriam here instead of Mary. And so she, she is praised by the Apostle Paul, which is indeed high praise, and um, that she is one who labored much for Paul and and his associates. And then in verse 7, we come to another verse. This is the third of the verses I mentioned earlier that are used by evangelical feminists in order to uh, argue for a role of women in authority in the early church. It reads, Greet Andronicus and Junia. This is from the New King James Bible. The King James has Junius. Junius is the form in the Greek, and apparently it is an, a, a form that could apply to either male or female there are some that have said this is uh, Junia, this is probably his wife. It's not sure uh, whether you, you can't be absolutely dogmatic on that just, just because of the form of the name. But uh, a large number of scholars take the traditional translation that these are two men that are mentioned here, Andronicus and Junius. So that's not a determinative issue in, in however this verse is used in the debate over um, over women and the role of women in the local church. Here's an example of how translations have changed over the years. Uh, the upper verse here is from the 1984 translation of the NIV where you see the form Junius, greet Andronicus and Junius. Notice the, uh, and then notice the lower verse. This is the 2011 version of the NIV. Greet Andronicus and Junia, and it is the same as today's NIV, which has been influenced by the gender-neutral uh, issue where they are trying to refer to God as just a person or something neutral, and they, they get a, try to get away from the masculine pronouns, and they try to make it a gender-neutral translation. All of this is driven by a secular philosophy that is shaped by the feminist movement. Instead of letting the Bible and the grammar of the Bible shape how the text is translated, they're imposing a modern feminist ideology upon the text and upon translation. And this shouldn't really surprise anyone who knows anything about uh, postmodernism and its relationship to language and linguistics and hermeneutics. In fact, Many of us believe from our readings and studies that about 80 to 90 percent of modern language theory is heavily influenced by 
by evolutionary thought and heavily influenced by postmodernism. And so you have to be extremely careful if you are in that field of study in understanding how that impacts their view, uh, their view of language. But I just wanted to bring this out, point this out, because it is uh, something that is that is significant. And the reason this becomes significant has to do with the uh, next line here and how it's translated. The first thing it states is, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners. And by that, Paul indicates that they are fellow Jews and also that somewhere along the line he has been imprisoned with them. There were many times Paul was jailed by uh, various opposing forces to him. Sometimes it was the Judaizers, sometimes it was just the Gentiles, and we don't have a a listing of all of those uh, circumstances in in the book of Acts. Luke just tells us about some of those. So apparently they had worked alongside of him and served the Lord with him for some time. So he sends greetings to them, and then he says, and the way it's translated in the New Americans, I mean the New King James Version, is pretty close to correct. Who are of note among the apostles? But there are some translations because it's a difficult word. There are some translations who translate this uh, outstanding among the apostles, as if Andronicus and Junius are also apostles. And you'll run into that. Now, uh, you see that in the 2011 NIV translation that I put on the screen a minute ago, uh, where that reads, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. If you translate it that way, now suddenly you have taken a, a woman, Junius, and you have elevated her to the position of apostle. So this is then used by someone who has no knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. See, in the early church, they had a um, they they had a, a complete equanimity, and they did not have this view that women could not teach or have authority over over men. And you ha- even had women apostles, and that's just not true. And that's not the way that the text uh, should be translated or should be handled. The best translation of this has the idea that they are uh, outstanding among the apostles, as in uh, not uh, outstanding among the apostles, but um, back to verse seven. They were of note; they were recognized by the apostles, and so this emphasizes that they were well known to the apostles. That's how the NET Bible translates this. I don't agree with a lot of the things that they do with some of the more theological areas in the NET Bible. Noticed a number of uh, problems there, but this is uh, done by the mostly the faculty. The New Testament is mostly done by the faculty at that time of, of Dallas Seminary, and translates it the that they were well known to the apostles. Uh, the Several other Bibles uh, translated in the sense of noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, recognized by the apostles, things of that nature. So that that translation resolves this that he that Paul isn't saying that they were apostles, but they were well known to the apostles, the group of apostles that were in a position of authority. And that brings us to an important brief little study on apostles. It's important to understand just how this term is used. The word apostle was used in everyday language to refer to someone who was sent on a mission. It had been used of military leaders, uh, notably an admiral, some others that were sent on a mission by the king to carry out a, a military uh, a military attack. They were sent on a mission. That mission. So they were, that noun apostolos was used that way, and that's the root meaning of the word apostle. It's someone who is commissioned to carry out a mission. Now, what's important there is you have to, when you come to the Bible, distinguish between who does the commissioning and what the mission is. So you have someone who commissions someone to a particular mission. Three elements are there. 
So uh, there are three, actually three different types of apostles in the Bible. The first has to do with the 12, the ones we normally think of as those who were disciples of Jesus, dropping out uh, Judas, uh, and they became apostles. It's a spiritual gift as well. So that's the 12. These are the ones who are commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing that you distinguish is who commissioned them. The Lord Jesus Christ commissioned them, and he sent them on a mission, and that is to establish the church in the new dispensation of the church age. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, when you build a house, once you laid the foundation, it's finite. You don't keep building it for every floor. You lay the foundation, and once it's completed, that's the end of it. The foundation part is over with. So the apostles and prophets would have been a finite group that were active only in the first century when the foundation of the church was established. So that tells us it's not an ongoing feature in the church. Now, you're always going to find a few people who come along and read the New Testament without a good understanding of time factors and how that relates to dispensations. And you have a number of people today who appoint themselves as apostles. And they might be in the second sense, but it just gets so confusing, I don't think that the word ought to be used in any way other than referring to the 12. But the Bible does use it in a, in a secondary sense, and that is to refer to others who were commissioned by local churches to take the gospel to other locations. For example, Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, is identified as an apostle. But he's never listed among the 12. He's never listed among those in Jerusalem. He was commissioned along with Paul by the church in Antioch to go out on the, what was, what's referred to as Paul's first missionary journey. So he's an apostle, lowercase a. He's commissioned by a local church. His mission is to, is limited to just that one missionary journey, although he did some things later on. But that's his focal point. So he's not an apostle with a capital A, like the like the twelve, like Peter, James, John, Andrew, Nathaniel, uh, and the apostle Paul as well. So you have passages like that that refer to these other apostles. And if, and I don't think it's true, but if you're going to say that that Andronicus and Junius are apostles, it would be of the lower case. They were just sent on a mission by a local church. They would not, this use of the term here does not necessarily have to be uh, equivalent to the the 12 or the apostles. The, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, 1 Corinthians 12 gives us quite a description of spiritual gifts, and their apostles are listed among as first among the gifted leaders that God has given to the local church, first apostles, and then prophets. So they were that that fits the pattern of Ephesians two twenty that those two gifts provide the foundation for the local church. When we get into the end of the Bible in Revelation twenty one fourteen we read, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. This is the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so it appears in that passage that there is a limited number of apostles. It's 12. Now, we always run into the problem with what do you do about Matthias, and there's a number of different ways that that's handled. One of the ways that I handled it when we went through Acts is to point out that there's never an indication by Luke that, that what Peter did was wrong. So it's always presented very positively, and Matthias was always included as part of the body of the apostles. Now, one solution to that, which I think is, is uh, at least gets credit for creativity and may, in fact, give us a, a foundation, is a recognition that that Matthias is uh, a, that Peter was thinking in terms of being an apostle to the Jews, and so he would be a lowercase a, and he's commissioned by Peter, 
not by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very clear that Paul is commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're going to have a, a finite number of only 12 apostles, I would rather have Paul in that list than Matthias and certainly uh, not having Judas. So it seems like the apostle Paul would be the one that would be included there. But Matthias was always seen as part of that group of the 12, although you know some people say, well, you never hear from him again. Well, the only ones you ever hear from again are Peter and John, and John never says anything in the rest of the book. Only Peter and Paul are the ones that talk in the rest of the book of Acts. So the fact that nothing else is said in the Bible about Matthias is irrelevant because nothing else is said about Matthew, nothing else is said about uh, James the Less, nothing else is said about Nathaniel, nothing else is said about all but uh, two of the apostles. So that's a specious argument. Uh, the point that I'm making here is that however you handle uh, this particular verse, the least likely thing is that, that Paul is indicating that a, uh, a woman here is among the, should be counted among the major apostles. That's, that's your least solution. And so uh, once again, you have typical of postmodernism and feminism hijacking a traditional text to try to justify your own political or sociological position. So the first category is what? You're 12. The second category of those who are commissioned by local churches to a particular uh, mission. And the third category is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews calls the Lord Jesus Christ the apostle and high priest of our confession. So in that case, it is Jesus Christ who is commissioned by God the Father to go into human history and to die on the cross for our sins. And so in that sense, he's the sent one. That's what the verb apostello means, is to be sent on a, on a mission. So in that sense, Jesus would be an apostle. So those are the three uses of apostle in the, um, in the New Testament. Now, moving ahead, in verse 8, we read, Great Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Obviously, someone who Paul was quite affectionate towards, someone who meant a lot to him. And so we see how, uh, how, how he has built these relationships with individuals. Now, we don't know anything about Ampliatus. It's a, it's a common name. Uh, according to Lightfoot, who was one of the great British scholars at the end of the 19th century. And it's a name that's often connected with the emperor's household, but we can't speculate about that, even though a number of people try to do that. There was a tomb with uh, the name Ampliati on it uh, in the Christian catacombs in Rome, but uh, it does you can't draw any connection. So that's all we know is, and all we can say is this is someone for whom Paul had a great deal of affection. In verse 9, we read, Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, or Stachus, my beloved. Again, Urbanus was a common name, and it was a common slave name, and there are some that try to connect this to the uh, household of the emperor. But again, that's more speculation than it is founded in any kind of historical or biblical, biblical fact. What we do know is that he was a worker in the local church. He served his ministry. Remember, pastors are to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And so he was a fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus was a one who was beloved, one who was close to uh, the Apostle Paul. In verse 10, we read, Greet Apelles. Again, this is a name that is found in the imperial household. So since several of these are names that were common to uh, servants or slaves in the imperial household, possibly many people think that this indicates that several of those who were in the um, uh, slaves in the emperor's household were Christians, and that is at least possible, but Again, we can't have any kind of, of certainty there. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, who's again a recognized uh, British scholar in this area, and some of these Brits just have such a wealth of training in the classics, 
in Latin and, and in Greek, that whereas their theology at times may be a little bit off, sometimes their study in terms of uh, the history of Rome and Greece is far beyond what you normally get in uh, in universities even today. So Apelles is approved in Christ. This is a, 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 the Greek word dokimazo, which indicates that he's been tested and that he's been evaluated. He's gone through some probably some opposition and some persecution. He has not yielded. He has not compromised. And so he has demonstrated his maturity, is that his maturity is rock solid. And then Paul says at the end of verse 10, greet those who are of, and this would indicate the household of Aristobulus. So again, this is a term that is common. Aristobulus was the name of a grandson of Herod the Great, but it's not at all certain that this would be a proper connection. Although in the uh, in the next uh, verse, you do have a mention in verse 11 of Herodian, my countryman, and the fact that uh, this person has a name that contains a name of Herod uh, gives support to the fact that this, this could include those who were in the household of Herod's descendants. So he goes on, uh, Paul goes on and talks in verse 11 about Herodian, my countryman, and then greeting those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. So this uh, name Narcissus was a name of a wealthy and powerful freedman in Rome who had been prominent under Claudius and was later put to death by Nero. Uh, his slaves would have passed to the emperor as a result of that, and all of his slaves uh, would have been indicated by this same name, Narcissus. So this is either talking about the uh, original Narcissus or one of some of the servants or one of the servants of his particular, his particular household. In verse 12 we read, Greet uh, Trophina and Trophosa who have labored in the Lord. And these could have been twins, identical twins that uh, were given a very similar name. Often that's what happens when you when people have twins. And they uh, the feminine noun is used here, so this refers to two women, that they have also labored in the Lord. Again and again we see that Paul is praising those because they are involved in ministry. They're not just coming to church and sitting and soaking up the word and filling out their doctrinal notebooks, but they are involved in ministry in different ways. They are active in the congregation. They're helping one another, serving one another, praying for one another, serving in many different capacities in relation to their spiritual gifts. So Trophina and Trophosa have labored in the Lord. Then the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord, is is recognized. Then in verse 13, we read Rufus, a Latin name that's very common. It means red. And again, it was a common slave name. And Rufus is greeted. He's re- recognized as choice, eclectos, choice, one in the Lord. And uh, his mother and mine. Now, that would be an allusion to the fact that apparently Paul knew the family and that Rufus's mother had treated Paul as if he was family and he was very close to that particular family, and perhaps Rufus's mother had uh, taken care of Paul at some particular, uh, some particular time. Even today, we often say that in, our, uh, in the way we describe relationships with people. You may have someone in your life, aside from your mother, who was a mother-like figure who was very, uh, very influential in the way in which you were reared. So Rufus and his mother are mentioned uh, there. Then in verse 14 we read, Greet as Syncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. A group of five names. We have no knowledge whatsoever of who uh, any of them are. They were, again, common names used in the Roman Empire, and it's very possible that they all uh, lived uh, or operated within the same house church. Some suggest uh, maybe they're brothers, but again, most of anything that we say is simply, uh, simply speculative, and we can't have any certainty there at all. 
So he's just giving a greeting to these five men. Verse 15, he sends greet um, uh, Philologus. This is a man who's, it may be a nickname, because the name means a lover of words or a lover of the word. Philos, meaning love, and logos, meaning the word or words. So maybe someone who is a scribe, maybe someone who is working in, uh, in rhetoric, uh, someone, and that this is his nickname. So he says, greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with him. That's very possible. This refers to a different house church and those who meet within that particular house church. The mention of the word Julia is uh, doesn't tell us anything. It's sort of comparable to our name John. There are a lot of people named John. I had so many friends named John when I was in high school. My mother made me refer to all of them by their last name so that she could distinguish them because otherwise she had no idea which one I was talking about. Julia would have been the same way. It is an extremely common, in fact, it may be the most common of all uh, Roman uh, Roman names. So Nereus is, uh, again, there's speculation that this may have been one of uh, uh, the one of those in Nero's household because there's somebody listed there of the same name, but we really can't uh, can't be sure because of the fact that there's more than one person who has that name. Then we come to verse 16, and Paul says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this is an interesting verse. This isn't the only place where he makes mention of that practice of greeting one another with a holy kiss. It's mentioned also in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, verse 20. And it, different cultures have different ways of greeting people. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to mix with other cultures. I kind of look back on my life. I remember when I was in my last year at Dallas Seminary, I had to take an elective. Every student was required to take an, an, an elective in Christian education and an elective in missions. And so there was a... I, it was going to be my last semester, and there was a class offered as a mission elective on cross-cultural communication. And I thought, well, it's the only thing they have, so I'm going to take it. And it was kind of interesting because one of the things that we had to do was go to diff- and attend different culture churches, even an, uh, even going to a a Hindu temple and a Buddhist temple and just seeing how these different cultures and different religions operated. One of the guys in the class had had a ministry for a while in a, in a black church, white guy, and he'd had a ministry for a while in a black church, and I remember thinking, well, you certainly have some interesting observations there. Little would I know that at some point later on, I would be working in a cross-cultural situation where I would have a ministry with a lot of black pastors, and that's certainly a very different culture. You also also going over to Ukraine every year, dealing with a different culture there, and then in many ways dealing with the a lot of Jews in different uh, functions that I'm in there. That's a different culture, and people greet each other differently in these groups. If you go to a black church as a pastor, there's sort of this ritual handshake and shoulder bump hug kind of thing. That that's how they greet each other. It's, uh, there's not sort of a uh, difference with the women. But then if you go to synagogue or you go to, if I go to any number of the meetings with um, in, in the Jewish community, then the, the women all offer their cheek. It's uh, You always greet with a kiss on the cheek. That is, again, very common. So that's distinctive among that particular culture. And there are different ways that different cultures greet. You know, white Americans tend to just shake hands. Every now and then we might might give a hug, but we have our ways of greeting one another that are different from blacks or Hispanics or Koreans, so everybody's a little bit different. In this culture, it was not uncommon just to have a kiss on the cheek as a form of greeting, but Paul is emphasizing that this is not to be a lascivious kiss, but a holy kiss, a chaste kiss, a kiss that is uh, just a, a brief little uh, kiss on the cheek, 
And so he says, greet each other with a holy kiss because this is how they would greet each other. So he's not emphasizing this is a command that should be cross-cultural. He's, the emphasis is on greeting one another and giving that greeting from him. And then he says, the churches of Christ greet you. And the churches of Christ refer to all of those churches where he has been uh, ministering and the churches that he has, that he has found, that he has founded. Now, when we come to the next verse, verse 17, all of a sudden the greeting section stops and we get into uh, something a little bit different. And he starts giving a little reference to uh, some things that are going on. So in verse uh, 17, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. So now he gives another stops and he gives another uh, exhortation or challenge to his readers. It says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. So he's going to define what he means by divisions and offenses by stating they're contrary to what they've been taught. Now, the New King James uses the word doctrine. Now, something has happened to the word doctrine within evangelical circles. Sort of a dichotomy has been set up. Now, the word dichotomy means two parts. It's got a Latin root, and it has the idea of dividing things in two. And so what often happens in seminary and after that is that doctrine is thought of as more abstract theology rather than just teaching. And the Greek word uh, didache means teaching or instruction. And that covers everything from instruction on the hypostatic union and the doctrine of the Trinity and some of what some people may think are the more abstract ideas in the Scripture to how to pray, how to memorize Scripture, how to apply what you've learned in uh, the local church to the voting booth. Uh, these are all important areas of what we would call application. Now, that's how the military uses the word doctrine. When you read military manuals, they use the word doctrine to refer to everything from the, from the original theoretical con- conception of a mission or developing a, a weapon or strategy or tactic all the way to its uh, final ultimate application on the battlefield. And yet, many of you may have already noticed this, but if you within certain circles and you talk about doctrine, well, I go to my church and learn doctrine. Well, I don't want to learn doctrine. I just want to learn how to love the Lord. I just want to learn how to apply the Bible. Well, see, that person has been ingrained with a false meaning of the word doctrine. The, the word doctrine refers to that whole realm of instruction that comes from the Scripture. So... He's talking about those who are causing division and offenses that are contrary to what they've been taught by the apostles and prophets. So the first word that he uses is a present active indicative, uh, parakaleo. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. So he's exhorting them, he's challenging them to do something, and they need to pay attention to something. It's the verb skapeo which means uh, to pay close attention to something. Be watchful. This is something that the deacons in a local church should be doing, paying attention to what goes on in the congregation so that they can keep a lid on things that may bubble up and cause problems within the local church. Now, we've been, in, in the 10 years that West Houston Bible Church has been around, we haven't had any real problems like that. We've had a couple little things that, that probably nobody noticed that just sort of simmered beneath the surface. But I've been in congregations where you'll have somebody who all of a sudden reads some book contrary to the pre-trib rapture and they get uh, a burr under their saddle about di- against dispensations or against or they become too Calvinistic or something like this and they start causing some problems. But we really haven't had problems like that in this church. So we, we watch these things. And the word that's used there for divisions is the word uh, dicostasia, 
which means they cause divisions or they cause dissensions. Now, this is a word that's used as a manifestation of the works of the sin nature. Galatians 5:19 through 21 gives a list of the works of the sin nature. Paul says, now the works of the flesh, by the flesh he means the sin nature, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, and the list goes on. And then it continues through Galatians 5.20 and into 5.21. And it's that word dissensions that's listed there, which is the same word that we have uh, in Romans uh, 16.17. In fact, that word that's in Romans 16.17 is also in 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. It's left out of the Nestle Elan text. It's a textual variant, but it's in the majority text and probably should be included as part of the original of Scripture. So it's a concept that's always used in a negative sense as a product of those who are arrogant and self-absorbed. Now, I know we don't have any problem around here with people who are arrogant or self-absorbed, but other churches have that problem. And people who are part of, uh, uh, of the city and the secular culture certainly have a close familiarity with that particular problem. So they cause divisions. It's an outburst of the self-absorbed sin nature. The next word that's used is that word offenses, which is the word scandalon, which I've always thought was an interesting word. It's the word we get where we get our word or from which we get our word scandal. And originally it referred to a part of a trap. You remember maybe when you were a kid that you learned that you could build a trap and maybe trap a bird. So you'd set a box up and you would put a stick that would hold that box up and tie a string around that stick and run it out about 10 or 15 feet and put some bread under there hope a, and hope a bird would come up under the box. And when they did, you would yank the string and the, that stick would, would collapse and the box would fall down and trap the bird. The word that described that stick was a scandaloth. That's it, it, it. So the original sense was that it was used as a trap or a snare to capture someone, and then it came to have the meaning of a temptation to sin or an enticement to sin or to uh, disobey God. And so this word is used also in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, which is just the previous context, the previous section, where Paul said, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a scandal on, not to put a stumbling block or cause or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So he's saying there are those who are creating situations that cause others to sin and that cause division within the body of Christ, which is contrary to what you've been taught, and we're to avoid those people. When people are divisive, just avoid them. Don't try to engage them. Don't try to straighten them out. Just avoid them. Don't let them become a problem in your life as well. Verse 18, Paul says, For, indicating it's an explanation, those who are of such, that is, those who are divisive and create offenses, those who are of such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. So when somebody is operating in self-absorption and uh, arrogance, they don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but instead they serve their own belly. Now, the word belly here is the word for stomach or womb, the Greek word koilea, and it's the figure of speech here technically is called a synecdoche, a synecdoche where you look, take one part of something and it stands for the whole. So what this is talking about is their belly represents the whole person. And what, what the figure of speech means is they're basically just serving themselves. They're so self-absorbed and so self-focused that that's what they're all about, is just promoting their own opinion, their own agenda, their own ideas. And as a result of that, they are just causing problems in the local church. Paul uses the same uh, figure of speech in Philippians 3.19 when he talks about uh, false teachers, those who are enemies of Christ, their end is destruction, whose God is their belly. 
And he's not talking about the fact that they eat too much or that they've got a problem with gluttony. Uh, That may be, but they're just self-absorbed. They're just feeding on their own desires. They are narcissists. They are self-absorbed and arrogant. And so this is the idea. Those uh, avoid those who are uh, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but themselves. You only have two options, folks. You're either serving the Lord or you're serving yourself. One or the other. There's no in between. It's one or the other. You're walking by the Spirit and serving the Lord, or you're walking according to the flesh and serving yourself. So he says, those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech. They deceive the hearts of the simple. So often you will find that that they have a real way with words. They have the gift of gab, and they're able to convince people of things, and it sounds good, and they present a good argument, and they're a good speaker, so people are entertained. Their ears are being tickled, and so uh, they like that. And Paul says these words deceive the hearts of the simple. And the word simple there is the word akakath, which means somebody who is without evil, somebody who's just basically simple. They're naive, we would say. They don't really expect somebody to be taking advantage of them in the local church and and selling them uh, a bill of goods, telling them a lot of things that aren't right. And so they just just believe them. And after all, they're such a nice person. They have such a good personality. How could they possibly be leading us astray? And so in verse 19, he, he goes on talking about the Romans. He says, for your obedience has become known to all. Uh, so in contrast to these uh, divisive false teachers who are leading people astray. And then he says, therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Now that word simple concerning evil, what in the world would that mean? Well, the word simple there is akarias. That A at the beginning is a negative like un, U-N in the English language, and it basically means something that is unmixed with something else, such as wine, diluting it with water. Or you might uh, mix metals with something of lesser value in order to uh, decrease its value and still, uh, still use it. Uh, or it could be uh, something mental, where in the, and something spiritual, where in this sense it's it's that is, you you live a life that is unmixed with evil. So you're not hypocritical, you're not two-faced, you don't have a, an ulterior motive. You're just focused on doing the right thing and living your spiritual life. And as a result, Paul says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Now, whatever he means here, because he uses the word shortly, he's indicating that this is a specific problem, a specific situation that the Roman church was facing. And he's encouraging them and saying that ultimately the opposition comes from Satan, but God is going to give you the victory, and this will work itself out very, very soon. And then he closes with a common greeting that is very similar to other greetings that he uses in the Scripture. And he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now, this is very similar to the way he closes many other epistles. In 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty-three, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. In 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, he says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In Galatians six eighteen, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Ephesians six twenty four, he says, Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. In Philippians four twenty three, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In Colossians 4.18, he says, Grace be with you. And 1 Thessalonians 5.28 says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2 Thessalonians 3.18, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In 1 Timothy 6.21, Grace be with you. 2 Timothy 4.22, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Titus 3.15, Grace be with you all. And in Philemon 25, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What's the emphasis there? Grace, 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 grace. 
Paul's emphasizing the gospel of grace that we need to live in a grace-oriented manner. So this seems like it's bringing us to a conclusion, but then guess what? Paul adds some more uh, closing salutations in verses 21 through 24, and then his final benediction in verses 25 through 27. Now, we're going to wrap up tonight's class here. When I come back from Israel, we will spend a little bit of time wrapping up the last six or seven verses here in Romans 16 and then do a final flyover. That'll be the Thursday night, one week before Thanksgiving. There won't be any class on Thursday night of Thanksgiving week on that particular day. That's a day for people to spend with their families, give you some opportunities perhaps to uh, uh, evangelize and witness to those in your family. So we should wrap up Romans then by by um, by the end of November and then in December on, I believe it's December the 4th, that first, uh, first Thursday night in, in December, we will begin a new series on First Peter. So in preparation for that, it might be helpful just to start reading First Peter so you know what we're going to get into. A lot of wonderful, great things in First Peter. And one of the things that it emphasized, one of the major themes is handling adversity, undeserved adversity. And this is important. I believe we live in times when we have not seen the kind of adversity in our lives that are coming and we need to be spiritually prepared for this. And that's one reason why I'm choosing First Peter and also First Samuel as the next books that we're going to study. So with that, we'll close in prayer this evening, and then I will see you all on Sunday morning. Father, thank you for this time to study your word this evening, to be refreshed by your word, looking down through the corridors of time as we see all of these many individuals that were impacted by the gospel and who in turn went out to challenge others, to teach others, to minister the word to others, and to serve you, and that this has been multiplied uh, a thousand times, a million times over down through the ages, and we just counted a privilege that we can serve you in this way and to take the opportunity to orient our own lives and our own priorities around opportunities that we have to to minister for you uh, around uh, in our households, in our families, where we work, and in the local church. And we pray that you would help us to have uh, creative and insightful ideas for how we can be involved in this ministry and imp- improve and increase our involvement. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.